Let's pretend it's the end of this whole ugly story. We vanquished the foe and we triumphed in glory. There's nothing but rainbows and blue skies ahead. Hallelujah, amen, it's the end. Welcome to Unsent, a podcast that shares letters from folks with something to get off their chest. I'm your host, Ari Edwards, and each week, I'll share real unsent letters submitted by listeners from all over the world. These letters can be a powerful tool that helps us gain clarity, closure, confidence, or calm in our lives. And they remind us that we're not alone in our struggles. We all experience difficult times and need a way to process them. If we take the time to listen and understand each other, we can offer empathy and support that brings us closer together. To share your letter with the Unsent Podcast, email it to unsentpod at gmail.com. And remember to rate and review the show so it can reach more listeners. Your letter may be the one that helps someone else. This is Unsent. You're not for me. You don't know me, and you won't, and there isn't any way to change that. Not really. You haven't shared any more of yourself with me than you have with the rest of the world. But you woke me up. And as much as I hate you for it, I love you for it, too. It had been eight years of purgatory and six months of hell when you came back into my life. I'd already buried myself like a seed before hell arrived, making the burial feel more like a grave than a garden bed. And as the long days of summer began to fade, it felt like a tangible hopelessness was approaching, and I wondered how I'd bring myself to survive the dark nights or the bitter spring beyond them. And then, there you were, unlooked for, unanticipated, one entire surprise. I started to laugh again. As the sun retreated from the skies, I sat in your sunshine instead, drinking your warmth and let you wake me up. I wasn't dead, only dormant, and full of seeds myself. And in that light, a light you didn't know you were shedding, a light you didn't intend to cast on me, they began to germinate. How can I explain how many things I'd had to put away over those six months, those three years, those eight years, and maybe more before that? I can't articulate how much of my life has been lost to waiting. No more than I can explain how you kicked a hole in my roof and the light flooded in, stark and painful and hot. I didn't ask for you, and you don't even know it happened, but you brought me back to real tangible life, the way air will revive lungs that are trying to succumb to drowning. With a cleansing, rasping burn, it hurts and reminds me I'm still alive. You've given me something essential, in all of this, something vital. It's uncomfortable and inconvenient, and so deeply human. I lean toward you like flowers do to the sun, and it feels somehow like dependence, and somehow like freedom. Your presence exhilarates as your absence aches, and I can tell that in my own way, 
My being has stitched itself to you, made space for you. It hurts now, with how empty that space feels, though I wouldn't change it. I feel more now like a primal being than perhaps I ever have. That's got to be biology, at least in part. It might just be where I am right now, but I know with a terrible certainty that my body would light up under your touch in a way that perhaps it never has for anyone. I've had so little of that anyway, but lacking it now feels like a suffering I can't endure. I watch now while others stand in your light, just for a little while, and I like to think I could last the rest of my life with just a little of that. It's a lie. I'd have a taste and I'd want more, more than you could or should give. Knowing that doesn't keep my mind from lingering in the places where it can happen, in that space between waking and sleeping where we meet sometimes. I know my mind manufactured some fiction of you for me to enjoy there, but it doesn't keep me from visiting, from building and rebuilding this version of you, taking everything I can learn, everything I do and don't want to know, trying to have you in my own way, Hold some part of you for myself in exchange for the way I seem to have laid myself at your feet. But it isn't enough. You've given me something, though. You've reminded me of those parts of myself, those seeds that were hidden and neglected. They've sprouted now, cracking the pavement above them, shaking all of my structures as life will overtake an abandoned building. You hurt, but oh, I wouldn't take it back. This is delirious ecstasy. Finding that under the shell of years, something I still recognize is here. The path forward lies this way, and it's all overgrown, tangled, and in the growing things I tried to hide under. They don't need uprooting, only tending, and I may have forgotten them without you. Ultimately, then, thank you. I suppose this will never reach you. I'm writing this more for my own catharsis than anything, as has been the case with most things I've written for you. Even now, the letter I wrote to you on our two-year anniversary is tucked gently into my journal. Pages of pages of how happy I was with you. I'd read it sometimes, after my roommate falls asleep, in an emotionally masochistic party of one. It reminds me of the happiest times of my life. I lie awake most nights now because I can't stop thinking about you. More than anything, I miss you, and I regret the decisions I made when I left for New York. I even regret going to New York oftentimes. The things I did to you, and the pain I put you through, I'll never forgive myself for. I neglected you and was a poor boyfriend because I was afraid and stupid and selfish. In economics, we work under the assumption that people try to optimize based on prior knowledge and experiences. I had never been in such a loving, serious relationship, and I didn't know how to be in that relationship. On top of that, my constant anxiety and rampant depression convinced me to push you away out of fear of committing and doing something that makes me happy. I didn't make choices for me. 
I made them for others around me and hurt you in the process. I can never write a long enough or good enough apology to you for what I did. I'm sorry. A million, million, million times. I'm sorry. Often, when I can finally get you out of my head long enough so that I can fall asleep, you're in my dreams, too. Rather, dream. It's always the same one. I'm standing in the hallway next to the theater in the lecture hall in high school, where you and I would sit curled up in the precious few moments before class started. I turn around and see you standing with one arm outstretched to me. You're wearing your gray dress and the maroon scarf, and I walk toward you. But every step I take forward, you take one step backward. I run, crying out to you, but you remain out of my reach. Suddenly, I find myself at the bottom of a swimming pool, and you standing over at the edge of the water. And as I sink, I hear you tell me, Let go of me. I don't love you anymore. And with that, I wake up, my pillow damp with tears, my heart pounding and I'm drenched in sweat. I'm tormented day and night by what I did to you. I'm sorry I ever hurt you. I'm sorry I wasn't half the man that you deserved. I was too worried about the world around me and was too busy listening to the voices in my head that told me that we would never work. And in retrospect, you were never given a fair chance, and for that, I apologize. Laying on a couch in Indiana at 2 a.m., I can only try to imagine what you're doing. If you still think of me, and I doubt that even if I did cross your mind, it would be positive. Not that I blame you. All the scorn and resentment in the world isn't enough for how poorly I treated you. I don't expect your forgiveness, nor the forgiveness of your family. I don't think that by you hearing this, I can magically make you fall back in love with me. I can only tell you that I'm still deeply, deeply in love with you, and I'll spend my dying breaths to tell you how much I wish I hadn't left you. I am not the man that you deserve. And at this point, I'm not the man that you want either. There are literally billions of other guys out there in the world. Most of them are more attractive than I am and a better fit for you. Know this, though. Nobody else will love you with the ferocity and urgency with which I love you. My heart beats in time with your name, breaking the silence of my bedroom with a rush of blood speaking my favorite name. My life has lost its music and its light. You lit my heart on fire, set my whole ass soul ablaze with your love, and in return, I ran away from you because I didn't know how to cope with my feelings. My fear and my weakness won out. I'm sorry for not having faith in you, or in us. I feel like Bruno Mars now. I should have bought you flowers. I should have held your hand. And I should have given you all my hours when I had the chance. When lobsters mate, they mate for life, they say. And you are still my lobster. My monkey. My babushka. My princess my sleeping beauty, my everything. I wish I could grow old with you. There will forever be a place in my heart for you, and for the life with you which I so stupidly gave up. Sometimes I dream of our family, the one that could have been, 
and I feel sorrow because I know that it will never, ever come true. I still have every photo, video, voicemail, letter, and painting I've gotten from you. I can't bring myself to get rid of them. My therapist tells me that even if I did want to get over you, it would take a couple of years of intensive therapy and a whole lot of mental legwork. But I don't want to get over you. To quote the great Alex Turner, I'm too busy being yours to fall for somebody new. Now that I've thought it through, crawling back to you. I miss you. I miss you a thousand times and in a thousand ways. The way you used to look at me. How your voice sounded when you were too sleepy to keep your eyes open and you wouldn't let me go. The feeling of your hair running like a golden river through my fingers. Your eyes, bluer than the Mediterranean Sea. Your smile. Your lips pressed gently against mine. The perfect fit of your hand locked in mine. I miss feeling safe enough to nap in your arms. I miss you falling asleep on my shoulder every time we watched a show or a movie. And I miss all the Disney movies I can't watch anymore because they remind me too much of you. I hope you're doing well. I'm sure your trip to Uganda was the life-changing experience that you wanted it to be. And I'm so proud of you for pursuing your passions. I remember when you were younger and so unsure of what you wanted to do with your life. You've grown up so much since then. I wish I was still a part of your growing. I admire you so much, princess. I wish I could still call you mine. If only I were Aladdin and had Robin Williams to sing songs and grant me wishes, then I could turn back the clocks and fix all the bad decisions I've made. I would give you the extra five minutes of napping on your couch that you would beg for, only to have me peel away and then head home. I would have stayed true to myself and fixed all my mental health problems so that I could be in a healthy, committed relationship with you. Above all else, I would have started therapy earlier. I could have had so much more strength in me to take the big leaps in my life with you by my side. I'm looking at apartments downtown, by our bridge, for after I get my degree and hopefully a job. And every single apartment I had to stop looking at after a few minutes because it could never be my home. Not without you living there with me. In the semi-autobiography, The Other Westmore, one of the Westmores says something to the effect of, you never know which chance will be your last. Well, I blew my chance with you, unfortunately. And I don't expect you to forgive me, because I know I don't deserve it. Just know that I love you. And I'm so proud of you even if it's only from afar. Good luck with everything, my dear. I love you. My beloveds, four St. Patrick days have passed since I lost you both. I knew my life would never be the same after you came into it. You left an indelible mark on my heart and my soul, and your death left scars that I bear with pride. I haven't told many people this, but after that crazy infection that damaged my heart, and finding out I had a choice between a drastically curtailed lifespan or open-heart surgery, 
I was a mess. I didn't really need to tell people that, and was kind of apparent. It was as routine a procedure as you can get. With a procedure that requires stopping the heart, cutting it open, and stitching it back together. The night before, it occurred to me. Dad and Margaret would be there when I went under anesthetic. And then, when I next opened my eyes, I would either see the two of you and Mom and my grandmother, or I would see Dad and Margaret. And I was okay with either one. I've thought a lot about you guys during the pandemic. Joe, you would have been so totally in your element with it. Get a place in the middle of nowhere, order rare woods, and finally establish yourself in the eyes of the world as a master cabinet maker that everyone who loved you already saw. Some months ago, coming back from Northampton, I stopped in the Vermont Welcome Center because it meant getting to piss 15 minutes earlier. They had a Made in Vermont display, and one of the pieces on display was a tall, narrow chest of drawers made from cherry and maple. It was just the sort of furniture you made so magnificently. Made entirely by hand, held together by impossibly precise joinery, beeswax lubricating the drawers, no hardware except the screws holding the drawer knobs on. It was the platonic ideal of handmade chest drawers, radiating a chest of drawerness so brightly that I broke down and the attendant offered to call an ambulance for me. It had a high five-figure price tag on it, the kind of price you tisked at every time I suggested that one of your pieces should command that kind of a price. I have to concede. If you had ever finished that mahogany desk that you showed me the sketches for, I wouldn't sell it for any sum of money. FP. You would have been a trial. We seemed so mismatched. The total screaming extrovert who walks into a room and within 15 minutes has seven new friends and has been invited to be someone's godfather and a groomsman in someone else's wedding. And the content introvert who goes grocery shopping after 10 p.m. and uses the self-checkout line because otherwise there are just too many people. You would have gone off the deep end by the second week of isolation, climbing the walls and me and Joe. But you were always a trial. And the more insane the idea, the more fun it turned out to be. If I had to choose one person to wind up needing to go to the emergency room with for all eternity, well, I'd need to choose two. You and Joe. Because we knew from experience that neither of us could overpower you alone. About a month ago, I emailed Casey. For silly online argument reasons. He was confused at first because he remembered my name, but thought I was that thick redhead with the ass that wouldn't quit. But he was pretty sure he'd gone to your funeral. FP, I don't think I could have summarized you to anyone in that particular group of friends any better than that. And I'm pretty sure you find that description flattering. Dr. Jake got involved to untangle the conversation, as he so often does. And that's why I found out that Casey remembered me as that hot uncut bear that was my little spoon at that crazy hot pig and funeral with Mike. That night was overwhelming, and I didn't remember that it was actually Casey who wound up spooning with me. But I remember feeling safe, loved, and surrounded by friends. And now that I have distance, so many parts of that phrase encapsulates so many of the things I loved about our eight years together. But the one thing that brings me the most joy was crazy hot pagan funeral. If that's what Casey remembers nearly four years after the event, 
then we sent you on to whatever's next in the right way. The conversation continued, and Casey said I should come visit once I'm vaccinated. That whole crowd is vaccinated now. They're all first responders or key medical and government personnel. And Mike's 50th birthday is in May. And Claire's flock is getting shorn around then. Speaking of hot guys whose asses won't quit, apparently the apprentice sheep shearer is first-rate eye candy. But Casey, practical and matter-of-fact about sex, apparently told Dr. Jake not to worry about the spare bedroom. I'd be bunking with him and Mike. His Mike. Not Mike T. If Mike T were part of the deal, hmm, well, I'll be in my bunk. Now, look, it's Casey, and I figured that if I accepted his invite, there'd be some adult playtime because, well, it's Casey. Dr. Jake seems to think Casey's intentions are more honorable and more long-term than that. See, I've been pondering this, and unlike every other offer that's come my way, it doesn't feel like accepting it would be a betrayal. You guys knew Casey and Mike before we got together, and they came to your funeral. And hell, you guys were alive and Casey and Mike invited me into your bed and you didn't insist on coming along? I'd have searched my possessions for my hidden spy cams. But most of all, Casey and Mike, and Jake and Travis, and Mike T and Greg and Mike L and Big Jake and Adam, they all know what it's like to live in a world that no longer has you guys in it. I'm not really asking for permission. I'm pretty sure I have that. When I went to put clothes away today, two of my kilts, including the black one that rendered FP speechless for longer than anything else has ever done, fell off their hangers, and an Ireland sweatshirt joined them. You said, put these on and go be hot, about as clearly as you could. Kindly refrain from knocking a whiskey bottle off a high shelf onto my head, as I'm not as durable as I once was. And that would just be a waste of whiskey. I'm doing well. I accept the past and that we wouldn't have worked out anyways. I'm happy and I've moved on. It's been about three years since we became strangers, and I'm good with that. Most days. But some days, when I'm focused on other things, your name will come up in a random reel on social media, or in an episode of TV that I've never seen before. And literally, it could have been any other name. There's a million more common ones but it has to be your name. Your initial shows up on my spare toothbrush, and my heart longs for you to be the one using it beside me in the bathroom as we get ready for bed. Look, I don't like this. This is not fun for me, to be pining for you and desperately trying to stop pining for you. I truly do want to move on, and I have been trying hard to do so. For a while, I thought I was over it. I did some crazy things, I left the country for two weeks. I expected you to have called while I was gone, as if you knew I might not come home. Or maybe left a voicemail or sent a text or something. And when I touched down, I wanted so badly to have heard from you. But I didn't. We had decided to part ways only a few months earlier. But you called a few times after that, and I was delighted to answer but I couldn't swallow my pride enough to call you for a change. My ego just wanted you to keep calling, as if I would be able to accept that as proof that you did care. It was a game that I shouldn't have tried to play, and I'm really sorry that I did. You deserved someone with better confidence, 
and maybe you got tired of being the one to reach out. Maybe you forgot about me or found a better connection. But I know for sure that I shouldn't be laying here wondering what could have been. You did say when we ended things that you were surprised I got upset with some of the things that happened. Because you didn't think I cared much. Because I didn't text back immediately like other people do. But I felt like I was getting mixed signals, and I operated under the assumption that if you're not sure how they feel, they don't feel the same way about you. And I wasn't sure about how you felt about me. In three years without hearing from you, why isn't that proof enough that we're not meant to be together? Why am I still holding on to your face behind my eyelids? Some days I'm not even thinking of you, but I'll open the door to a store or a building or even my own house, and before I know it, I'm expecting to see you. And I'm crushed with disappointment when you're not there. I miss the conversations. I miss hearing about your life and perspective and experiences. I miss the hours-long phone calls. I miss the drives and the nature hikes. I miss the acrobats, the libraries, and somehow impressing you with athletic skills I didn't even know that I had. I miss the challenges, the board games, and the laughing about nothing with you. I simply miss you. Not even how you made me feel. I just miss the privilege of spending time with a soul as extraordinary as yours. All your flaws even make you extraordinary. And I wish I was getting annoyed right now over your terrible time management. Some days... I just want to talk to you about all the things happening in our world. I long to know what you are thinking, what you are doing, how your life is going, and if you're at peace. Some days I just want to bump into you, but I'm not even sure if you live in the same place. And I'm not about to be a stalker. I wouldn't do that to you. I know how terrible that can be. Do you still have that book that I gave you? Have you read it? Do you ever see it on your shelf and maybe think of me? Just when I have removed yet another layer of things that reminds me of you, the dreams about you start up again. After a third night in a row of dreaming about you, I broke down and found you on social media and sent you a message. Apologies and well wishes. Your response started off very enthusiastic, and I was relieved to read that, Hello, it's nice to hear from you. The body of your response was a mirror in form and structure to my initial message, with some kind words of gracious encouragement. You were always so kind, and I should have never unsent my follow-up message, or at least never deleted the chat. If I had just left it there, I would be able to call you. I made that mistake with your phone number years ago. I was just in such a rush to delete everything when we parted ways, just to shut it out and forget and move on. It was so painful. I was silly. But I shouldn't hold out hope that you would have answered or called me back anyways. You were never mine. We only knew each other for a short few weeks, so I go back to telling myself that you didn't want the same things that I did in life, that you didn't care for me in any meaningful way, and that things you said, such as, right girl, wrong time, held no weight. I try to forget about the last time we hugged. I try to forgive myself for getting embarrassed and ending things after a taste of intimacy with you. I just didn't want to get hurt again, and I didn't have much real evidence to suggest you even liked me. 
I was only looking for evidence to the contrary. This wasn't love. It wasn't a long endeavor, and we likely aren't compatible. I'm positive you don't even want the same things in life as I do. We weren't old school friends, and we are very different people. So why am I having such trouble letting you go? It's driving me mad. Some days I wonder if you put a spell on me, or have asked the universe to curse me and disallow me to forget you, as I've tried even more than I'm willing to admit anonymously to get over you. And for a while, everything was fine. Over the last year, you may have crossed my mind once or twice, but I didn't really miss you or have any feelings about you. But these past ten months has really been tough on me. So in the off chance that you're hearing this, please know again that I'm sorry. And in the double off chance that you did indeed do something to cause this, I would very much appreciate if you could unreverse so that, please, I want to move on. I need to move on. It's time. Attempt number two. Here we go. Seven weeks, 49 days, 1,176 hours, 70,560 minutes. However you look at it, the conclusion remains the same. Like a thief in the night, you've sneaked into the plains and crevices of my heart, leaving a trail of warmth in your wake, but stealing my oxygen and shoving it in a duffel bag. A master of precision. Whenever I answer a question in class, I see your head whip back in my peripherals. But it takes everything in me, every drop of willpower, to resist looking over and allowing our eyes to meet momentarily. Why? Because when I look in your eyes, I'm afraid of drowning in the blue ocean that rests in your sockets, scared of never being able to return to the surface. I'm afraid of the way your nose may scrunch in distaste. I'm afraid your brows may furrow together in annoyance. I'm afraid your face may ask me, what are you looking at? I'm afraid. I'm petrified. However, I tell myself, where's the evidence to support any of those fears? Thanks, Julie. But I still find the slippery tendrils wrapping around my heart injecting it with a dangerous level of trepidation. It's irrational, illogical, because I know you, of all people, would never be able to do that. There isn't a single bad bone in your body out of all 206. However, the fear doesn't cease. Instead, it started leaking out of my arteries, gradually diffusing into my cells, ultimately making me pull away from you entirely. Instead, now, I admire from a distance an impassable barrier between us. Nonetheless, make sure you cream your face. Not too little, as it will make it look dry, but not excessively, as it will make it look too shiny. Make sure you put on lipstick. Make sure you position your glasses so they comfortably sit on the bridge of your nose. Make sure you spray. Make sure you arrive at exactly five past eight. Otherwise, you may miss him. 
make sure you chew your gum. And make sure you, most importantly, try to talk to him. The key word being, try. I wanted to talk to you, but I didn't. Who is she? Who is that girl? My heart cried, pleaded, wailed, and bled. It plummeted to the bottom of my gut as the realization hit. Is she your girlfriend? Does she have a crush on you? Do you have a crush on her? Calm down, the logical part of me says. Be rational. However, over the past few weeks, I've come to understand that the brain cannot rectify these insecurities. It's a battle of the heart alone. Feelings are complicated. They've twisted and tightened around each other, forming a complex knot in the bottom of my gut. And regardless of the innumerable attempts, the knot hasn't loosened. Sometimes I wish there was an answer to deal with these emotions, like a math equation, black and white, but constant, offering a modicum of security. On the outside, the information feeds into my eyes like a movie, frame by frame, milliseconds turning into seconds and seconds into minutes. I watch as you glance into her eyes. I watch as you laugh and slightly tilt your head to the side like you always do whenever you're confused, or thinking, or concentrating. I watch as she giggles, her eyes glistening and rosy cheeks illuminating. I watch as the distance between you two minimizes as you retreat. I watch from afar as my heart screams, but my brain remains unresponsive. I watch as the back of your head gradually fades into the distance, paralyzed. Silent and wishing. I watch because that's all I can do. It's funny. Before I wanted you to get a girlfriend, I thought seeing you happy with someone else would have expelled my feelings for you. But it hasn't. Instead, a melancholic melody strummed, drowning out the outside world and amplifying my desire to have what I can't have. But I have to keep the lid on. I bite back the tear threatening to leak out, swallow the lump in my throat, then let out a breath, keep calm and carry on. But it hurts. It feels as if a dagger has been thrusted into my heart, and the blade is being rotated and twisted in quick, sharp motions, not allowing a moment of recovery. It's making sense now. I understand why my walls are so high. They're a defense mechanism a way to mitigate pain caused by those around us. A shield. You're dangerous. Without even realizing, you've given permission to my heart to steadily lower the walls protecting it, leaving me exposed and vulnerable to attacks. I want to stop feeling like this. I want to stop pining over the confidence you exude. I want to stop longing to feel your warmth as we walk side by side. I want to stop tripping over my feet as I race to catch up with your retreating figure. I want to stop yearning to be in the same position as that girl. I want to stop feeling like this. But how do I do that? I try to dislike you. But the sound of your voice silences the callous voices in my head as if you have some sort of insight into my thought process. I can't move on because when I see you, I remember all my feelings. They all come rushing back to me, pushing me back to square one. 
If my hair was long enough, I would be ripping it out in heaps and bundles. However, the pain wouldn't ever be enough to equate the emotional turmoil you fill me with. My eyes always find your head, as if it's some sort of magnetic device that has been installed, pulling me towards your direction. Because apparently now, crushes only obey the laws of physics. You make me feel so good. But then you beat me, black and blue. But I still can't get enough. It's like a drug. I know I should stop. But I can't. And I don't want to. Therefore, I find myself down on a one-way road. A road leading to inevitable hurt. But at least for the time being, I can continue to feel. And feel from a distance, I tell myself. Yours truly, your secret admirer. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unsent. I hope these letters and stories have provided a sense of connection and understanding. To share your letter with the Unsent podcast, email it to unsentpod at gmail.com. And remember to rate and review the show so that it can reach more listeners. Remember, your letter may be the one to help someone else. See you next time on Unsent. I'm sure we'll all live happily ever after Surrounded by butterflies, children, and laughter It's a fairy tale story, so let's just pretend Hallelujah, amen, it's the end Happily ever